Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he, that is Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Divisive issues are not new to our day. Divorce and remarriage is a painful and divisive topic now, and it was then. It has not changed. It was just as much a landmine then as it is now. And if you don't take away anything else from this this morning, I want you to see that Jesus does not avoid difficult topics. Jesus does not hem and haw and equivocate, kick the can down the road, change the subject, but rather, Jesus addresses this issue and other issues courageously, carefully, and clearly. And so this morning, let's follow Jesus and let's attach ourselves to him and to his response. When it comes to this painful topic or other painful topics, we should ask, what does God's word say? Because there is an answer and Jesus addresses it head on. And so this morning we have three points, one very short first point, a long second point, and then a fairly short third point. First point is we'll see a willful blindness. The second point is a biblical understanding of marriage. And then the third point is a deeper identity. So a willful blindness, a biblical understanding of marriage, and a deeper identity. First is a willful blindness. Remember that this passage, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, is part of a bigger chunk, bigger section, chapters 8 through 10, is all controlled by this imagery of blindness, partial sight, and full sight. Back in chapter 8, Jesus had healed a man that was blind, and he healed the man in two stages. The man went from completely blind to partial sight to full sight. And Jesus means for us to understand that about ourselves. That apart from him, we are blind, 
When he begins to work in our lives, we begin to see, but we need him to continue working in our lives so that we can see clearly. And so here, this passage, the Pharisees are another example of willful blindness, of not seeing anything. We see that in verse two. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and in order to test him, asked about divorce. The Pharisees are not treating divorce as a theological issue, but rather a political issue in in this passage. This is not a good faith question from the Pharisees. They're not coming to Jesus saying, hey, we we really want to know about this. They do not care where Jesus falls on the issue. They just care that he picks a side so that he will alienate others. They are seeking to put Jesus on the spot in such a way that he will anger others. They're seeking to, to, to catch him so that people will flee from him, so that people will stop listening to him, so that their power will be strengthened and his will be diminished. Truth is transactional for the Pharisees. They are less concerned about what is true and good and more concerned about what will preserve and increase their power and position. So understand in Jesus' response that the, the context is antagonistic and polemic. The presenting issue is divorce, but the underlying issue is the willful blindness of the Pharisees and their spiritual hardness of heart that has led them to dishonor God and his word and to make a mess of their interpersonal relationships, specifically as it relates to marriage. When we read this passage, we should be as impressed with the Pharisees as we are with a toddler who covers their eyes or covers their ears because they don't want to listen to mommy or daddy. That's that's what's happening here. Jesus, show us the truth, but they don't want to see. So there's a willful blindness on the part of the Pharisees. And Jesus responds with a biblical understanding of marriage. So that's, this, is our, this is our biggest point. A biblical understanding of marriage. First look at verses six through eight. From the beginning, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So first, first point in a biblical understanding of marriage, marriage is God's idea and was instituted before the fall as a, get, as a good gift to mankind from a loving and generous God. Jesus quotes two passages in Genesis. Genesis 1, 27, when God made humanity, it says, he, God made them male and female. That's a direct quote from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God made them male and female. God designed humanity and God designed humans to be men and women. 
And God designed men and women to enter into the covenant of marriage. So Jesus quotes Genesis 1.27, male and female, he created them. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So marriage is a man and a woman coming together into a one flesh union, a covenant relationship. And the one flesh union of marriage is consummated by and illustrated by sexual intimacy. Sexual intimacy is what marks off a marriage as unique and special. In marriage, a man becomes one flesh with only one woman, and so reserves sexual intimacy for that marriage relationship. That is God's original design. And Jesus shows us here clearly that marriage, as God created it, is always and only between a man and a woman. Any other union is not marriage, even if it is called marriage. That, that's God's original design. If you go all the way back to creation, all the way back to Genesis 1, male and female, he created them, and a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And second, in its original design, marriage is designed to last a lifetime. In its original design, marriage is Marriage is meant to last a lifetime. Verse nine, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The one flesh union of marriage is God's work. Jesus says in verse nine, what God has joined together. The creation of the marriage covenant is God's work. And so because it's God's work, it is not right or good for humans to take it apart. So what God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage creates a new family. Two non-relatives become next of kin. A man and a woman who are not related become the closest relationship. And so it is fitting for that relationship to last a lifetime. A father-son relationship, a, a brother-sister relationship, an uncle-nephew relationship is a fixed, lifelong reality, and so should be a husband-wife relationship. Again, we're talking about original design here, pre-fall design. Just as you would never consider an amputation on a healthy body, you would never separate a healthy marriage. The Pharisee's question should not be, is it lawful to divorce, but rather, what can we do to preserve and strengthen marriages? That should be their main concern. But we don't live before the fall. Which brings us to this, the third point. The fact that God gives a provision for divorce in the law of Moses 
is evidence of and a byproduct of the devastating effects of sin over every area of human life. So back to verse three. Verse two, the Pharisees say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command, commandment. As Jesus so often does, he answers the Pharisees' question with a question. Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce? What does, man, what does Moses command you? The Pharisees take Jesus, they answer Jesus' question, they take him to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses one through four. And they quote Deuteronomy 24, where Moses, and now Moses, remember, Moses is writing Deuteronomy approximately 2,500 years after Adam and Eve. 2,500 years after the fall, in a very broken world. When we get to Deuteronomy 24, this is written into brokenness. And in Deuteronomy 24, Moses lays out guidelines for divorce when it does become necessary. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees see this passage and say there is provision for divorce, therefore divorce is always lawful. That's, that's the Pharisees' basic argument here. They have been given an inch and they've taken a mile. Moses allows for divorce. Moses says that there, there are circumstances where divorce is allowable. Therefore, divorce is always lawful. That's, that's the leap that they are taking. And Jesus points out their error, which again is, is willful blindness. The Pharisees do not want to see the truth. Jesus says to them, do you not know that divorce only exists because of sin? Do you not know that divorce is only necessary because you have hard hearts? Do you not understand that amputations only happen because of disease or injury? Divorce exists in the first place because of the hardness of human hearts, and with your hard hearts, you misuse and abuse divorce, making matters worse. And so, divorce is, our, our fourth point, divorce is allowed under, circum, under certain circumstances. And we'll, we'll return to those circumstances in a minute. Divorce is allowed under certain circumstances, but it is never commanded. Verse, verse three. He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus asks, what did Moses command? And they respond, Moses allowed. Jesus' heart here in the passage is, what God has joined, let not man separate. And what has been broken, let it be healed. As followers of Christ, we do not enter or exit marriages lightly. The primary goals for a person in marriage are to honor and obey God and to bless and serve their spouse. 
Those are the two goals of a Christian marriage. Honor and obey God, bless and serve your spouse. And there, of course, are other goals. Every marriage is impacted by sin, by weakness, by disappointment, by pain, by trouble. No husband loves his wife perfectly. And no wife loves her husband perfectly. But under most circumstances, and I, I, that's phrased carefully, under most circumstances, we will not leave our marriages when those difficulties come. That's why the marriage vow, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do I part. That's the goal. We will face trouble in our marriages. We know that. But under most circumstances, we will continue in the marriage. And even, even when a marriage is broken and divorce becomes permissible, the spouse who has been wronged has the option to physically separate but not initiate divorce. So there is never a time where we must divorce. Take that final step. We may, we may need to physically separate, we'll talk about that in a minute, but you never are required, commanded to divorce. It becomes permissible but not commanded. And so, next point, Jesus' prohibition of remarriage after divorce in this passage. Jesus prohibits remarriage after divorce in this passage, but that prohibition should be read in the context of the Pharisees' attempt to validate divorce for any cause, which is what we refer to as a no-fault divorce. Look at verse 10 through 12. The disciples hear Jesus interact with the Pharisees, and when, when they get Jesus in private, they ask clarifying questions. What, what are you talking about here, Jesus? They asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So in if you're only reading those verses... Right here, the, the, the simplest reading of just these verses is Jesus saying, no remarriage after divorce, in specifically this context. Because the Pharisees do not demonstrate a concern for preserving and strengthening marriage, they only are interested in maintaining their access to divorce. And so verse 11, what Jesus is saying is, if a divorce was initiated without proper cause, if this is a no-fault divorce, there is not freedom to remarry. He's, he's telling the, the disciples, don't say to me that you have freedom to remarry just because you filed the proper paperwork. 
with regards to the type of divorce the Pharisees are trying to legitimize, no, there are not grounds to remarry. If you divorce on illegitimate grounds, you are not free to then remarry. And again, we're gonna get to the legitimate grounds in a minute. But just in terms of those illegitimate grounds, there is not freedom. In the same way that we will fight hard to keep our arm, even if it is injured, diseased, or hurting, we will fight to preserve our marriages. There are a few situations where it may become necessary to amputate an arm, and there are many more situations where it is not necessary. But there are some situations. So, next point. In Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, which is the parallel text to Mark chapter 10, in Matthew 19, 1 through 9, Jesus gives an exception for remarriage on the grounds of sexual immorality. And in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16, Paul adds another exception for desertion by an unbelieving spouse. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 19. This is the same event, and Matthew gives additional detail. Matthew 19, and we'll skip all the way down to verse nine. This is Jesus. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So he, Matthew adds in this detail of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is an exception to the prohibition for remarriage. Now, in Jesus' context, in, in Matthew and Mark, there was no such thing as a marriage between an unbeliever and a believer. Jesus is a Jew, and he is speaking to other Jews, and it was forbidden in the law for a, for a Jew to marry a non-Jew. And so Jesus is talking to Jews who have married other Jews, people who claim to be children of God, who are married to other people who claim to be children of God, members of God's covenant family. Later on in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to a different context. So, Paul tells the Christians in Corinth that they must not be yoked together with unbelievers. So in the old covenant, a Jew must marry a Jew. In the new covenant, a Christian must marry a Christian. So Jesus is talking into this, this context where there are no, I'm, I'm a Jew, but I'm married to a non-Jew. That just didn't happen. And so Jesus only needs to give one exception one exception here of sexual immorality. Now you fast forward to Paul's context in 1 Corinthians, and he is addressing first-generation Christians in a frontier missions context. There were no believers in Corinth, and then Paul and others went and preached the gospel in Corinth, and people came to faith in Christ. Corinth is a Gentile city, and the vast majority of those in the church in Corinth are people who have set aside their non-Christian religious identity and taken on a new identity in Christ as adults. 
I was born and raised into this religion, and then as an adult, I converted to faith in Christ. And so, in Paul's context, it raises the question, what happens when one spouse takes on that new identity as a believer, and the other spouse does not? So now you have an interfaith marriage. Christian, became a Christian after marriage, non-Christian, didn't change where they were prior to marriage. Should that, so Paul's answering the question, hey, I, I came to Christ, my, my spouse has not come to Christ, should I divorce them? Because now I'm yoked together with an unbeliever? And Paul's answer is, it depends. So look at 1 Corinthians 7. Verses 10 through 16. He's giving these to the married, I give this charge. To the unmarried, I give this charge. And then you get to verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be clean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So you see there, it depends. If in, in this situation, no. In this situation, it's okay. Verse 10, Paul of chat, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10, Paul begins with Jesus' word about divorce. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And in verse 10, when he says, not I, but the Lord, and then in verse 12, when he says, I, not the Lord, do not read that as verse 10 is... Jesus' words and has authority. Verse 12 is Paul's words and does not have authority. This is God's word and it all has authority. And Paul's not saying that. Paul is saying, hey, here in verse 10, I'm quoting what Jesus said earlier. But now here in verse 12, I'm not quoting Jesus, but I'm still under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So both are equal, but I'm just distinguishing what's happening here. And so Paul begins with Jesus' word about divorce in verse 10, and then he builds off of that to add instruction for this new context his readers find themselves in. And Jesus, or excuse me, Paul tells his readers, if you are able to live together in peace with your unbelieving spouse, if they consent to remain with you, it is good to remain together and to continue to pray for and pursue their conversion to Christ. But if the unbelieving spouse separates, in other words, if the unbelieving spouse does not consent to remain with you, but rather deserts the marriage, you are free from that marriage, is Paul's word. If you're married, you come to Christ, your spouse does not, if they consent to remain with you, keep that marriage going. Keep living with them in an understanding way. Keep praying for them. Keep asking God to convert them as well. 
But if that unbelieving spouse says, you're a Christian, I don't want to be married to a Christian, I'm out of here. You are free, Paul says. You are not enslaved. So there's these two, two exceptions. There's sexual immorality and there's desertion, separ- being separated from, having, having your spouse leave the marriage. And the underlying dynamic that creates a need for divorce is the breaking of the covenant of marriage, the severing of the one flesh union that marriage creates. Jesus says in Matthew 19 that this severing can happen through adultery, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it can also happen through desertion. So the two become one flesh. If one spouse breaks the covenant through adultery or breaks the covenant by leaving, then the, the, the one flesh union is, is broken. So if you are a Christian, you will strive to keep up your end of the marriage covenant. You will strive to keep up your end of the marriage covenant. And if you do fall into sin and break the marriage covenant, you will repent of your sin and, and pursue reconciliation. That's, that's the call for a Christian. And if you are a Christian and you have strived to keep up your end of the marriage covenant, but your spouse has broken the marriage covenant and persists in that breaking, through adultery or desertion, you are free to formalize that break through divorce, though not necessarily required to. And you are free to remarry in the Lord. You are free to remarry a Christian. So 1 Corinthians 7, 39, he says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So if that, covenant marriage, if that covenant relationship is broken and formalized through divorce, you have the freedom to remarry in the Lord. But not, of course, not the requirement to. So I want to say a word here about a spouse who persists in breaking the marriage covenant through adultery or desertion. This spouse may consciously identify as an unbeliever. That is the immediate context of 1 Corinthians 7. Two non-Christians marry, one spouse hears the gospel and responds in faith, the other spouse rejects the gospel, and the unbelieving spouse seeks divorce. The unbelieving spouse does not want to remain married to their spouse who has become a Christian. That was happening in Paul's day in Corinth, and that happens in our day. This is part of the history of my extended family. I have a family member who experienced this. They came to Christ, their spouse did not want to be married to a Christian, left the marriage. And that has had a deep, long-term impact on that portion of my family tree. That happens. So the, the, the unbelieving spouse may consciously identify as an unbeliever, but the spouse who persists in breaking the marriage covenant may consciously identify as a believer. But their persistence in the sinful behavior, whether it's adultery or desertion, 
their persistence in that sinful behavior undermines the credibility of their profession. The call to follow Christ by faith is a call to walk in obedience to him and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3, 8. And so a person who persists in any sin, including the sins of breaking the one flesh union of a marriage covenant, is demonstrating by their actions that they do not believe the gospel and they do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Lord of their life, regardless of their verbal profession. Think of it this way. If you say you are a vegetarian, but you eat a steak every day, you are not a vegetarian. And it's the same with your confession of Christ. If you say you are a Christian, but you live as a non-Christian, you are not a Christian, if you persist in your sin. And this is why abuse also constitutes grounds for divorce. When Paul is speaking of marriage in Ephesians 5, you can turn there, Ephesians 5, when, when Paul is speaking of marriage, he draws on the one flesh union imagery from Genesis 2. So you have Ephesians 5, look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Because marriage creates a one flesh union, both spouses should love, the husband should love their wife as they love their own body. And the idea of abuse in a marriage is as alien as a man hating and harming his own body. If a spouse is abusive, they are breaking the marriage covenant. And it is right and necessary for the abused spouse to physically separate themselves from their abuser. And if the abuser is not willing to acknowledge, repent of, and pursue reconciliation for the abuse, they are creating a dynamic where the marriage cannot continue. They are functionally deserting the marriage. The abused spouse may have taken the step to separate, but the abusive spouse created and bears responsibility for the cause of separation. And so if you are an abusive spouse, take heed of this warning. You are walking in wicked, grievous sin, and if you do not repent and change, you are harming your spouse and you are undermining your confession of faith. If you persist, you should have no assurance of your standing before Christ. I don't care what you say. There is hope for you, but there is only hope in repentance and change. And if you are in a position of being abused, Jesus does not call you to remain in that abuse. You have a right to take action, to physically remove yourself and your children, if that applies. You have a right to physically remove yourself from the path of harm. 
you have a right to call law enforcement. You have a right to inform the church. An abusive spouse does not have the right to privacy and protection from law enforcement or from the church. For your sake and for your abusive spouse's sake, it is right and necessary for that sin to be brought into the open. If this is your situation, please talk to me or another elder in the church. We care deeply and we want to engage to help you. If talking to us feels difficult, please talk to another person in the church, specifically to a woman, and ask her to come with you to talk to us, or even for her to initiate the conversation with us. That is okay. One last comment on on this idea of divorce and remarriage. This, This topic is difficult, complicated, and deeply personal. It's one thing to talk about this on paper, and it's another to flesh it out in real lives and relationships. And there is honest, thoughtful, and careful disagreement over it. And we should be able to fellowship together without agreeing on every detail of this topic. In, in the hierarchy of theological priorities, this is a level three. This is, this is not a, where you, where you land on divorce and remarriage on the spectrum is not a salvation issue and it's not a fellowship issue, it's a wisdom issue. We are together in our desire to understand and honor and submit to the authority of Jesus revealed in scripture. We are together in our desire to affirm and uphold the sanctity of marriage and we are together in our desire to love and care for one another and specifically for those who are in difficult, vulnerable and sensitive situations. And we may not be exactly in agreement on how broadly or narrowly to allow for divorce versus separation or for remarriage. And that's okay. So that's, that's a biblical understanding of marriage. And now I want to close briefly with a deeper identity. God is not redeeming people to be husbands and wives but sons and daughters. Your marital status is less important and less permanent than your identity as a son or daughter of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Go to to Luke chapter 20, and this is where we'll close. Luke 20, verses 34 through 36. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Marriage is deeply important. It is a good gift from God but marriage is temporary. In the new heavens and new earth, men and women will not marry. Whether or not you are redeemed by Christ 
and reconciled to God, that will matter more and that will last forever. Your marital status is temporary. Your standing before God is forever. You may be husband or wife. If you are trusting in Christ, you are son or daughter or brother or sister. Through the grace of his son Jesus, the father considers you his son or daughter. That is that is God's, that's the identity God gives you, and that's the identity this church cares about. We care first and most about your status as a child of God. If you are a child of God through faith in Christ, we warmly receive you as a brother or sister. And we care about your status as single or married or widowed or divorced or remarried only secondarily as part of your story, not as your identity. Whatever your marriage story, if you are trusting Jesus and holding fast to him, there is a place for you in this church and there is hope for you in Christ. Let's pray. Father, this has been a fire hose. There is so much to say about marriage this, this biblical picture of marriage that we are given, there's much to say about it. There's much to say about how sin and, and weakness and brokenness impacts marriage. There is much to tease out. We've only begun to do so. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us, help us as a church to honor you and to love one another. Thank you for the, thank you for the core identity that you give us as redeemed sons and daughters. In Christ we pray, amen.